Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Adam Hochschild. And Adam, we haven't spoken for quite some time. Uh, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing all right. I wish I could say our country was doing all right, but uh, I'm much less sure of that. You know, I come to you because of Bury the Chains. I'm sorry, I came to you first because of Bury the Chains, which is deeply about our country, even though it looked like it was about England. I mean, it was about both. And now for King Leopold's Ghost, one of the questions I'm going to ask you is how much of this book were you writing about us today and how much of it was about history? Because it seems, I, it, reading it, so much of it, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So much of it seemed like I was reading about stuff that's happening right now and is dying for, uh, how do I put it? The the treatment of, of people seeing, you know, this, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let me, let, let me go back a step. Uh, that I first came to you because I had realized I'd seen abolitionism as a role model cause for sustainability. Many other people had come to you, and, and you wrote this book, Bury the Chains, about abolitionism in England, which I read, and it was eye-opening and inspirational and incredible. And I think I mentioned this when we spoke before. I'm working on books, and I read this, and I'm like, this quality of writing is so high – I'm not even going to bother trying because I can't match this. But I got past that. <laughs> and I hope that my editing leads to... I think that's an exaggeration, Josh, but I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> well, I'm not saying you're like Hemingway. It's not that... It's not like... But there's something that's really well-researched and um, compelling and really page-turning. It's not usually that I think of like, oh, let me read about slavery. That sounds like really fun reading. And it's not fun, but it's definitely compelling. And then... I guess before King Leopold's Ghost, I had also read for the first time um, Heart of Darkness, mm -hmm. which I went through once and was like, how did I not read this before? But I also didn't really think – I was like, why is it so great? And then I went through a second time and I was like, oh my god, there's layers and layers here. Mm -hmm. And it's way more than I thought. And your book, King Leopold's Ghost, is – you know, it's not fiction and it's uh, it treats it colonialism in, and imperialism and the what it takes to so many different aspects of it. And it's much more clear. It's not like it's, you're not, you're not um, Conrad, Joseph Conrad. You're doing something very different. And it's just a, to me just as compelling, but in a very different way. As it happened, there's a book that I was about to read that's still on my list. I haven't gotten to it yet. And I was thinking of waiting until reading it to contact you about it called uh, when, when McKinsey Comes to Town by two investigative journalists from the New York Times. One of them won, has won multiple Pulitzers. And I haven't read it yet, but I've, re I've listened to interviews and read um, short uh, synopses of it. And it felt like what you're talking about going on with Belgium and the Congo seemed very similar to what our finance and consulting firms here are doing, to say nothing of the ones that are the mining and extracting ones. Yeah. So I guess I want to ask first, if you don't mind my jumping in and asking, how much of what you were writing did you feel you were writing about a past that's in the past and about a lot of, found, a lot of who we are and what made us who we are today? Well, that's a good question. Um, when I tackle a piece of history – and in this case, it was how King Leopold II of Belgium got his hands on this 
enormous area in Central Africa that today is the Democratic Republic of Congo and previously was the Belgian Congo and previous to that for 23 years was the private, personally owned colony of King Leopold II, usually called in English the, the Congo Free State. Um, I did sense there were a lot of echoes in uh, that history for the world we're living in now, because there still is a scramble for the riches of Africa. You know, every day in the newspaper, we, we read about Russia's Wagner Group. Well, we forget that they're not just operating uh, in the Ukraine war, but they have huge operations in the Central African Republic and Mali. And, uh, you know, there again, it's an outside power trying to get its hands on riches in Africa. China is also operating in Africa. And of course, some multinational corporations uh, based in the West are there still. So I think any story about colonial conquest in the 19th century is going to have echoes today. Uh, there are other people who've written about other parts of that story. A, a good friend of mine, Siddharth Kara, just wrote an extraordinary book called Cobalt Red about how cobalt, which is an essential ingredient in the cell phones that we all use and in various other parts of, of the technology that we depend on, um, a vast proportion of it is mined by child labor in the Congo today under absolutely appalling conditions. So I think there's a lot of stuff that's happening today that was prefigured by what happened in the 19th century. Yes. Yeah, and, and we're mentioning Congo, but I mean, we could pick the African rainforest or we could pick Chile. And I mean, there's mm -hmm. something similar going on in lots of places. I also just spoke again with John Perkins, who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman, but then also Secret History of the American Empire, and talked about how we're doing these things. And it feels like the pattern, like King Leopold, he how do I, he deliberately and systematically went about setting this stuff up. And it's, you know, the patterns change, but, you know, we want something from there and we get it. And and there's also the home market driving. Yeah. I wonder if you could describe a scene uh, that was, I, I think, a big scene in the book of, of um, the boats going out, coming in from the Congo, full of ivory and maybe at that point rubber. And the boats going out, having no goods in them at all, just soldiers and weapons. And there's a journalist looking at this. Yeah, that's an extraordinary moment that sort of made me realize I had to write a book about this. Uh, but we have to set it up a little bit. Uh, King Leopold got his hands on the Congo, having it recognized as his personal possession, his privately owned colony, first by the United States and then by all the major nations uh, of the world, uh, particularly in Western Europe, in the 1880s. What was happening then was what we call the scramble for Africa was just beginning. Europe was dividing up Africa uh, among its, itself. And we're okay with, with giving a portion of the country to King Leopold of Belgium. Belgium itself was a small country, no navy, no merchant marine. Most people in the Belgian government felt it would be an extravagance to have a, a colony under those conditions for the king 
that was fine because he wanted a place where he could make money and where he could rule supreme without having to worry about parliaments and voters and so on, which he had to do in Belgium itself. So he got his hands on this territory. It uh, was the thing he was first after was ivory, which was then enormously lucrative. This was before the days of plastics, but you could use ivory to make piano keys, jewelry, statuettes, carve it into various uh, figurines and so forth. And then starting in the early 1890s, wild rubber. They had just invented the inflatable bicycle tire that was soon followed by the automobile. There was a tremendous demand for rubber all over the world. It takes about 15 years. If you plant a plantation of rubber trees, it takes about 15 years for those to grow to maturity to the point where you can begin tapping them and harvesting rubber from them. But if you've got uh, land that has rubber growing on it wild, you're really in clover. And that's what Leopold had, because in the huge Central African rainforest, which covered about half of his domain, uh, rubber grew wild, not as trees, but as vines that twined around uh, palm trees and other trees up to where they could get some sunlight. So he rapidly began harvesting this rubber. Well, at some point, approximately 1899-1900, we don't know the exact date that it started, um, there was a Liverpool shipping line, British shipping line, to whom Leopold had given the monopoly on transport of Congo of cargo between the Congo and Belgium itself. And this shipping line turned to a young man on its staff, Edmund Dean Morel, because he was bilingual in English and French. Um, his father had been French, his mother English. Uh, and every couple of weeks, they sent him to the Belgian port of Antwerp to check in the ships, the, the, their company's ships that would bring cargo from the Congo, tabulate the cargoes and so forth, make sure everything was in order. And Morel began to notice something standing on that dockside at Antwerp. And I've actually been to that dock and stood there and tried to imagine what it was like for him. He noticed that his company's ships were arriving from the Congo filled to the hatch covers with these enormously valuable cargoes of ivory and wild rubber. And he knew that gathering wild rubber is an immensely labor intensive thing to do because you have to send people throughout the rainforest, you know, to tap these vines, let the rubber drip into them, bring buckets of it back, and so forth. But when the ships turned around and sailed back to Africa, they carried no merchandise in exchange for all this, uh, no trading goods. Instead, they carried mostly soldiers, firearms, and ammunition. And he realized, standing on that dock in Europe, 4,000 miles away from the Congo, he realized he was looking at evidence of a slave labor system thousands of miles away, because there's no way you could have gathered all of that rubber uh, without forcing people to do it if you were not sending them anything in payment for this rubber. He went to the head of the shipping line and said, something terrible is going on here. We shouldn't be a party to it. The head of the shipping line told him to get lost. When that didn't work, 
tried to promote him to another job in another country. When that didn't work, tried to pay Morel some money to shut up. That didn't work. Morel quit his job, and in the space of a few years, he transformed himself into the great British investigative journalist of his time. And he devoted himself, you know, 10, 12 hours a day for the next decade to putting the story of King Leopold of Belgium and his forced labor regime in the Congo on the world's front pages. And he succeeded in doing that. Probably I want to ask about the writing because it, it read it, how much of it would you describe the book as character driven versus historical? Because the characters you you must have researched incredibly, they, they really come alive. And how much did you see yourself in Morel? <laughs> well, I felt like I'd been handed these characters on a platter. If you had written a novel with an immensely ambitious, greedy king who wanted to amass a huge fortune in Africa, and a brave young Englishman standing at the dock and having this realization, and not to mention all kinds of other people who come into the stories, such as uh, a steamboat captain sailing up a river in that territory who later becomes a world-famous novelist, Joseph Conrad, um, various eyewitnesses to this horror who tried their best to expose it. If you'd written a novel about all this, people would have said, it's implausible. It wouldn't <laughs> have happened. There wouldn't have been something like that. But all of this is real, and it's documented. And many of these people wrote their memoirs. Uh, Conrad wrote Heart of Darkness about his experience as a steamboat captain in the Congo, and he kept a diary for part of that time as well. Um, Morel, the young man on the dock side, as I say, turned himself into a great investigative journalist, wrote three full books about his discovery in the Congo, 36 pamphlets, uh, hundreds of newspaper articles, a blizzard of correspondence, and all of that is there for us historians to look at. So it was just a goldmine of information. The thing that puzzled me when I started researching it was this. I, I was by no means the first person to discover all of this because at the time when Morel was orchestrating this great crusade against what King Leopold was doing, this was the most publicized human rights campaign in the world. Uh, there were more than 900 public meetings in England, in the United States, uh, other countries in Europe, as far away as Australia and New Zealand, publicizing the atrocities in King Leopold's Congo. Uh, other people wrote books about it. It was the big scandal of, in the sort of international human rights world of the decade from 1900 to 1912 or so. And then it got forgotten. And I'm always interested in why things get forgotten. And I think one reason it got forgotten was that in 1914, the First World War came along. Uh, Belgium was a victim, invaded and brutalized uh, by the German army. And uh, uh, all of British and French and American war propaganda was based on coming to the aid of poor, little victimized, neutral Belgium. And it didn't suit anybody to remember the thing, the terrible things that the Belgians were accused of doing just a few years before. And 
World War I produced an enormous death toll of, you know, of white people. And so people in Europe and America tended to pay much more attention to that than they did to what may have been an equivalently sized death toll in Africa uh, a decade or two earlier. So I think those are some of the reasons why it got, it got forgotten. While reading it, I kept having to remind myself that this was decades after the American Civil War. And I guess you wrote this book first. It's almost a quarter century ago. I guess uh, the writing must have started before. I mean, the book came out, I think, in 99. And uh, 98, 98, actually. This is the 25th anniversary this year. They're going to do a 25th anniversary edition of the book, actually. I highly recommend it <laughs> to everyone. And now you read, you wrote this before Bury the Chains, but this it takes place, a lot of it, a century later than things that happened in and it's shocking that like it feels like it should have gone the other way like this should not have been able to happen after abolition after slavery was illegal all across europe and and it's king leopold was able to create a persona for himself early pr i guess mm -hmm. to present himself as helping as as getting rid of slavery while creating slavery and it's, I mean, it's in one sense mind-boggling. I mean, your book it lays it out, and it's clear how it happened. I'm curious about the psyche of King Leopold himself, and the psyche of the people praising him and buying the rubber, and just looking the other way. I mean, they weren't looking the other way; they didn't know. But it's. Well, you're, you're right that this shouldn't have been able to happen in a world which had, in a formal sense, pretty much abolished slavery almost everywhere uh, by the time uh, of the 1880s when, when Leopold really began to get his hands on this territory. But you asked about his psyche. He was a, an enormously ambitious man who was openly frustrated with being king of such a small country. At one point, he said, uh, petit pays, petit jean, meaning small country, small-minded people. Uh, he was envious of the larger countries on either side of him, you know, France, Germany, Britain, and France and Britain had large colonial empires, and Germany pretty quickly uh, uh, acquired one. Uh, and he wanted to make money. Uh, and it was also, it was not so much, it was a time when it was not so much fun to be a king anymore because you had to share power with an elected parliament and a cabinet. Uh, and uh, European monarchs, uh, except in Russia, where the Tsar had absolute power, had sort of ever less power. But he knew if he could get his hands on a colony, that would be his personally, he could make a lot of money there, could rule supreme without any interference from elected politicians. And for 23 years, uh, that's what he did, 1885 to 1908. Um, he made use of the fact that the world thought it had abolished slavery by carrying out his conquest in the name of suppressing the Arab slave trade, because there was still a trade in slaves from the east coast of Africa 
to the Arab and Islamic world. So there were indeed uh, uh, slave raiders who were penetrating what's now the Congo from the eastern side of the continent, seizing people, taking them to the coast and, and selling them as slaves uh, in the Arab world. It was not on the scale of the Atlantic uh, that the Atlantic slave trade had previously been in, but it was there. And it gave Leopold the excuse of saying, I'm conquering this country in order to bring them Christianity, to teach them the benefits of commerce, and to stamp out the Arab slave trade. And yet, people he, he didn't want people to notice that he was, in effect, starting a sort of slave labor system of his own. Where this really came into being on a large scale was in the harvesting of wild rubber. Because, as I mentioned, these rubber vines grew in the rainforest. They were scattered quite widely. You might have only one or two vines per acre. And so they had to get people from African villages to go deep in the forest to gather this wild rubber and bring it back. Well, how do you do that? Well, what they did, the king had a private army, 19,000 officers and men, black conscript soldiers under white officers. He would send it, you know, detachments of the army into village after village. They would take the women of the village hostage, hold them in chains, and you can see photographs of this, in order to force the men of each village to go into the rainforest for days and sometimes weeks at a time to gather a monthly quota of wild rubber. Only then would they release their wives being held as hostages, and sometimes the next month arrest them all over again, and the whole process would begin again. So this was how this forced labor system worked. And it took a terrible toll because, of course, when you have the men of a village off in the rainforest for days at a time gathering wild rubber desperately, their women are all chained up. There's nobody to plant and harvest crops, to go hunting, to go fishing, to do all the things for which an African community would normally feed itself. So there was widespread near famine. And when you have condition like that, people often succumb to diseases that they might otherwise have survived. Plus, there were tens of thousands of people who died in rebellions against this regime. Uh, and they died because Leopold's army was equipped with repeating rifles, machine guns, uh, you know, small cannon. They could get around quickly because they had steamboats which could travel up and down the rivers. Whereas the Africans had, you know, spears, shields, and maybe if they were lucky, a few old muskets left over from slave trading days. Uh, more people died because uh, immense numbers of Africans trying to avoid the forced labor system fled into the rainforest uh, where there was little food, no shelter, and they died. So there was an enormous loss of population from all of these things. Further, not just deaths, but I say loss of population, because when people are living in conditions like this, they tend to stop having children. Well, you're describing how people were forced into situations where they died, but there was also the hands and the, just the murder. I mean, there's there's a lot of not just dying, but I mean, the it was... Heart of Darkness, when they talked about the stakes, the heads on the stakes, it wasn't quite clear in the book, at least the first time. But 
your book made that scene much more vivid to me. That the brutality, the it wasn't just they were putting them in, in that they were like holding the women hostage. Well, it was, you know, a brutal period of conquest. And that was true of colonial conquests everywhere. Elsewhere in Africa, you know, the conquistadors in Latin America, uh, the way people in North America treated the Native Americans. You know, when you are going in and seizing somebody else's land uh, and they're resisting, things tend to get very, very brutal and nasty quite quickly. And we've seen this, you know, in recent months in the horrible things that the Russians are doing in, in Ukraine. Um, and this certainly happened uh, in Africa. Uh, you know, we read Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and the famous image from the book is outside the the house of Mr. Kurtz, the, the villain, Deep in the rainforest, there are severed African heads placed atop fence posts. Well, Conrad was not making stuff up because there are records of eyewitnesses seeing white men in the Congo at that time who collected severed African heads. And at least two of these people are people whom Conrad probably met and at least heard stories about. I want to connect this situation to today. There's a, a sentence or two in your book. I should have, I should have copied the sentence out, but I think you were helping the reader understand the value of ivory. And you said that ivory then is like plastic today. Now, I've been avoiding packaged food for some time now, and I see plastic as a, as a poison. And a lot of people are like, yeah, well, the thing that's so, such a problem about it is it's so useful. And, Everyone is like immediately thinks about stents and holding people like medical treatments and so forth. Anyway, but we don't need it so much. And anyway, when I read that sentence, I thought, and I think people today, I, I, I'm sure there are people who feel otherwise, but I think most people today feel it's, um, to collect ivory is, is barbaric. So I read that sentence as you wrote, Ivory then is like plastic today, but I see plastic today is like ivory then. And if you're horrified at collecting ivory, what are we doing? I mean, and also plastic is, is fossil fuels. It, that, I mean, that's where it comes from. And what we're, that made the whole, the whole book read to me like, that's what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Well, I think you're right that if you trace back the story of the origins of so many things that we use today or that people used, you know, 150 years ago, there's uh, a real horror show at where this stuff comes from. Uh, and I think you're right that plastic, fossil fuels, um, it's not... Uh, you know, there is something in common with this ivory that came from the Congo. It's not that, you know, people are being tortured at the site where oil is being extracted from the ground, but extracting that oil from the ground, burning it, processing it, using it as fuel is overheating this planet in a way whose effects we are already feeling now and our children and grandchildren are going to feel them in far more horrific ways. Uh, not too far down the road. So I do think we have to think very carefully about 
where does the stuff come from that we use? Uh, and that's why I admire, you know, what you're doing is, is trying to use as little stuff as possible uh, and to document uh, how you get by by doing that. Uh, find ways where we don't, you know, we don't harm this already endangered and fragile planet any more than it is right now. Not to mention, you know, the people living on it who get directly harmed in the extraction of things like rubber 150 years ago and cobalt today from this same much tortured part of the world. Yeah, there's a, one of the guests on this podcast, uh, Katie Redford, did this case. She was a lawyer. Actually, when she was in law school, she was in uh, then Burma. Mm-hmm. And she saw this company, Unocal, was working, was required by the government to hire the military there to help build a pipeline. The, and so what she witnessed was they, they would displace people from the land who had been there forever, or not forever, but for a long time, indigenous people. And now they're homeless. So the army would then, at gunpoint, force them to work, so enslave them, yeah. murder them, rape them. She came back to the States horrified by this and, and in law school wrote a paper on how she dug up this case from, uh, sorry, a, a law from I think 1787, like very, like one of the earliest federal laws hmm. and wrote a paper how this could be applied that someone outside, a non-US citizen could use this to sue a, U, a US company for things happening outside the US. Oh, the, the false, is that the False Claims Act? I don't think that's the name of it, but I, for, I forget. I think, I think Jefferson might have written it. Uh-huh. I forget the name of it, but the case that she brought – so she submitted this paper in law school and, and her professor gave her an A and said, you get an A for this paper, but you know, too bad it would not, wouldn't actually work. And she then started – I think it was called it's Earth Rights or Earth, Earth Rights and brought the case Doe versus Unical huh. and sued Unical. And I think they settled for hundreds of millions of dollars wow. and set a precedent that – so you were saying we're not – I mean we – we are paying for enslavement, colonialization, imperialism of places, and it's documented. I mean, it's not, and and cases are yeah. are lost by the by the oil companies yeah. doing these things. So, to me, it's like the and the home market is paying for it. I mean, it's the profits by us that are paying for it. I mean, they don't want to just go go do it for themselves. The, the ivory sold for a lot of money. And yeah. today, the fossil fuels sell for a lot of money. You also mentioned uh, that I'm using less. And I have to clarify that that's what's easy to see from the outside. And what my book is about, which my uh, up- upcoming book is about, is I would not try to persuade others. And I wouldn't share my experience except for one thing that I very unexpectedly have found that it's not – it. It looks to everyone else like I'm using less. But I am enjoying life way more than I ever could have expected. And the comfort and convenience is... I thought I would lose things like comfort, convenience. I thought it would cost more. I thought it would be uh, unavailable to people without the resources that I have and things like that. Everything's the opposite. I've been... It's exactly the opposite of what I expected. And what we are losing out on by... Buying this bill of goods, I, I I could go into more depth on that. I'm a, is the stuff that people want on the gravestone? No one puts on the gravestone whoever dies with the most toys wins. Although I've said that many times yeah. as a youngster, 
we put on our relationships with others and all this stuff is standing between us and other people. And what we're missing out on is joy and freedom and liberation and, and connection and humanity. So I'm not peddling less. Mm -hmm. I'm helping people to see, like no one is missing whale oil. No one is missing ivory, even right. though at the time those things were tremendously useful. Right. Now you could say, well, replace them with fossil fuel stuff, but nothing is replaced. How do I put it? It's because I, my apartment is disconnected from the electric grid now, which means if it rains a lot, not, you know, less computer time. And mm -hmm. that means, for example, less. I can't listen to music and watch movies as much. But the replacement is singing. The replacement mm, is telling stories perfect. with people in real life. I don't get, I, I can't get strawberries from the store in the winter time. They're there for sale, but I'm not going to get them. But it means that when I get strawberries, I've been waiting 11 months and those uh. strawberries are more delicious. And when they start going out of season, the cherries start coming in and the June mm. berries start coming in. And right now I'm swimming in lettuce that I haven't had in a while. And it's delicious. Like, oh. I can't tell you how much better, how much better it tastes. And I used to love Doritos and there's not enough mm -hmm. money in the world to get me to eat another Dorito as much as they are pleasing to the power were how perfectly crunchy bliss point they've hit. And this is one of my big challenges is to, get people past what is easily visible, what the journalists all want to cover. They want to take pictures of me up on the roof with the solar panels. Mm -hmm. But you can't really take a picture of no TV. Yeah. <laughs> you can't take... Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, good luck to you. And uh, uh, may more people try to do the same thing. That's what I hope to get happen. And Because uh, I think that we're missing out on something. We don't know what we're missing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After a couple generations we've kind of lose touch with these things with, you know, the connection, the, the, the park at the end of the block that doesn't exist anymore. Like I'm in Greenwich village. So when the twin towers, when they were trying to figure out what to replace them with, there were different plans. And I kept saying to people, you know, I didn't make this formal proposal, but I kept saying we should put a park down there. And yeah. Yeah. Even regular people were like, what are you joking? I mean, no one took it seriously. And I was like, trees, trees have value. Yeah, yeah. Getting back to King Leopold's ghost. <laughs> okay. This, I, I wanted to bring it to now. I, partly, um, I'm curious about how it's affected you and your life. Do you get bored of telling about it? I mean, you've been talking about I it for... I don't, actually. Uh, <laughs> I don't, actually, because uh, the story is still very real, real for me. It feels like there's an echo in the world today. Uh, I have uh, been to the Congo myself a couple of times since then. I've talked about the book there. I've written about what I've seen on those trips. And I see how the same kind of exploitation continues today in in very different form. Uh, so I feel there's a continuity with what is happening uh, happening today. And the, the, you know, going back and thinking about this story renews my interest and determination to keep finding other stories like that that I can write about. Such as Thomas Clarkson in Bury the Chains. 
Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and in fact, writing King Leopold's Ghost led me in part to the subject matter of Bury the Chains, the much earlier movement to abolish slavery in the British Empire, because I found that E.D. Morrell and the people around him sometimes talked about their admiration for the British abolitionists of a hundred years earlier, whom I didn't know very much about. Uh, in fact, I knew very little about it. So that was one of the things that got me looking at those folks. And then an interesting thing happened, which was that when I was writing King Leopold's Ghost, I went to Belgium and England uh, in the course of my research. And one of the things I wanted to find was this. At these protest meetings to try to tell the world what Leopold was doing in the Congo, uh, Morel and his allies used what were called magic lantern slides, an early form of slide projector where you could show uh, a photograph uh, on a screen. And they had photographs which had been given to them by missionaries who worked in the Congo who photographed things like hostages in chains and men sometimes also in chains with baskets of wild rubber they'd gathered and so forth. I wondered where those photographs had ended up. And I found them in the office of an organization called Anti-Slavery International, uh, which works against all forms of slavery and forced labor going on in the world today. And it was very moving to find these old wooden boxes of these magic lantern, you know, like two inch by two inch slides in the same room where young volunteers were coming in and out, uh, picking up uh, video cassettes and DVDs about uh, forced labor in Bangladesh today and, you know, child labor on plantations in Latin America and so forth. It sort of felt a continuity with efforts to stop this kind of thing over the centuries. And Anti-Slavery International is the successor organization to the old, I think the original title was British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, which was in turn the successor organization to the committee that Thomas Clarkson had founded in 1787 that I wrote about in Bury the Chains. So a lot of circles were completed when I visited this room. I hope that I don't sound vain here, but I secretly hope as I'm reading these books that I become the subject of one of these things of changing cultures. Because, I mean, certainly reading them, I realize that these things can change. We can do these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hope that, I, I think that's one of the main messages, that these are role models, not just historical figures. That's certainly a message that I intend, and I sure hope it's true, that determined people who care passionately about writing an injustice and who think long and hard about what are the best ways in which to publicize their efforts really can bring about change. I contrast your works. There's, I don't know if you've read the New Yorker profile of me from January of this year. Yes. But yeah, so the guy came over and he spent hours over here and I cooked him one of my famous no packaging vegan stews. I took him up to the roof, but most of all, with a, to some solar panels, but most of all, I talked about what I said to you about and, and the strategy of what I'm doing. 
if you knew what he did not put in that article, it would you'd cry at what he wrote about, like squashing bugs, even though I'm veget- vegan. And it's totally irrelevant. And it led to the story, this image I have of journalism today regarding in- the environment is that there's I, I picture a reporter walking along and there's a, a child drowning in a pond, in a pool. And they think I'm a journalist and they write a story about it instead of going in and saving the child. And then as they write about it, they see that there's this conveyor belt that's like sending more and more babies into the, into the pond. And they write, oh, look at that. And they write about that. And it's, I can't fault someone for doing their job and for promote, for, for prioritizing what they do over to me being human. But it's also not obvious what anyone can do about it. It's very easy to, it's very tempting and very simple to think, well, what I do doesn't matter. What if I do something, you know, there's a million ways that we all, what I call rationalizations and justifications. But your stuff isn't, doesn't read like that. And, and a lot of people say, well, I'll just publicize it and that'll get people to act. But usually publicizing doesn't get people to act. It just gets people horrified. But in the, maybe in some cases it gets people to act. The Triangle Shirt Factory, where people felt that they could do something there right away. But in, in, in the environment, people, I think it, most people feel like giving up more and more and more and just like turning overwhelming. off. You know, it's the whole world, you know, how are we going to get the Chinese to stop burning coal also? It's not enough yeah. to just do it here. It can be overwhelming, but I think you have to keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, I hope the next journalist who comes and profiles you does a better job. Um, you can't, can't, can't count on it always going right the first time. Uh, I certainly complain, you know, about how some of my books have been reviewed. And then every once in a while, a reviewer comes along and does see it exactly the way I want them to see it. Um, but I think that's the that's the experience of any kind of activist, uh, anybody writing about or doing work about something you care about. Uh, there are many misses for every hit, but you just have to keep on doing it. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, what's been the legacy of the book in terms of others? I mean, I remember with Barry the Chains, you said a lot of people, environmentalists, come to you about it. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's, it's alive yeah. today. Legacy of King Leopold's Ghost has been very interesting uh, to my – and I had an interesting sort of saga with the book because the – as you well know, being an author yourself, before you write a book, you write a book proposal that lays out what you plan to say uh, in a kind of enticing way, and you make sure a publisher is going to publish it. And I wrote a book proposal for King Leopold's Ghost, and I had published three other books at that point, which had you know gotten good reviews and won a minor award or two, so I was not a complete unknown. The book proposal went to 10 publishers, and nine of them turned it down. Uh, three of those nine were actually people I knew personally. I still have letters from some of them saying, you know, well, there isn't even an African history shelf on most bookstores, in most bookstores, or, well, why don't you try this as a magazine article first? Or, well, I don't think this book would sell. The 10th publisher happily understood that this was not a story to be filed away on the Central African shelf but was about right and wrong, justice and injustice, some extraordinary people. They published the book. 
and it took off. It sold about three quarters of a million copies so far, of two thirds of them in English and the rest in, I think, 16 or 17 other languages. And it's been fascinating to watch its effects. Uh, a year or two after the book was published, I found a message on my voicemail from a guy with an African accent who said, uh, I need to talk to you. My grandfather was worked to death as a porter by the Belgians. Uh, I've met many Congolese who thanked me for the book. And, you know, we've talked about things that, that they might write. Uh, I've been there a couple of times now. Uh, it's been most interesting me to interesting to me to see the effect the book has had on Belgium. Um, in a peculiar way, I had a very unfair advantage, which was that I was an American. The book was published here in English and simultaneously in the two principal languages of Belgium, French and Dutch. And it became the number one bestseller there in both languages. The only time that's happened to be anywhere with any book being number one on a bestseller list. Uh, and I think it had uh, an effect because it was written by an American. If the, exactly the same book had been written by a Sri Lankan or a Hungarian or a Slovene, I'm not sure anybody would have paid any attention to it. But the U.S. does have, for better or worse, this extraordinary period of dominance in the world. Um, the book got friendly reviews in Belgium because most newspapers gave it to their Africa correspondents to review. And anybody who, you know, has spent time in Africa, covered Africa, knows something about this story. It's like you can't know European history without knowing about the Holocaust. Uh, it then produced a tremendous reaction uh, against it in Belgium because there were, at the time it was published, 1998, uh, tens of thousands of Belgians still living who had lived and worked in the Congo when it was a colony. And there was a federation of organizations of old colonials, you know, former members of the police, former members of the colonial army, former employees of this or that corporation, which issued uh, a long denunciation of the book that appeared on their, their website. Then a couple months later, somebody must have told them, you're just giving this bad fellow more publicity, and they took it down. Uh, most fascinating has been the to see the effects on a museum, a historical museum, that the king himself, Leopold II, started in Belgium during his lifetime, the Royal Museum for Central Africa which up until 1998, that when the book was published, there was nothing in this place that reflected anything other than a strictly colonial view of the world. Uh, the museum, uh, it's filled with stuffed animals and, you know, uh, beautiful Congolese art and artifacts and nothing that indicates that during the time that all this stuff was being brought back to Europe, you know, this colony was run by a forced labor system. Um, the director of the museum made the mistake of appearing at a press conference in Brussels very soon after the book was published. And somebody asked him, are you contemplating changes at the Royal Museum for Central Africa? And he said, yes, we are, but it will be done on a scientific basis and not as a result of that disreputable book by an American. Uh, then... 
over the years, changes did take place. I went back to the museum several times, uh, three or four times over the years. And, you know, directors came and went and came and went. And at one point, they hired an advisory committee of uh, Congolese living in Belgium to advise on the exhibits. And then these folks found they had to sign a non-disclosure agreement and that they really had no power and they quit. And the museum sort of became a battleground between people who wanted to preserve and honor the old colonial days and, you know, younger Belgians who care about human rights issues and who wanted this uh, history to be told fairly. So they made a couple of unsuccessful attempts of doing that. And then finally, the whole place shut for five years, reopened a couple of years ago. And now they actually do do quite a decent job of talking about the the history of what really happened. And uh, it's shown pretty much with no holds barred in the rather limited section of the museum that deals with history. Most of it is still stuffed animals and artwork and so on. And the oddest thing of all, of course, is that this uh, museum, which I think is the largest museum in the world dealing exclusively with Africa, is thousands of miles away from the African continent. But of course... There's all sorts of unsavory parts of American history that we don't deal with in our museums, such as, for example, the Philippine War, a very brutal anti-colonial struggle in which hundreds of thousands of Filipinos were killed, which was going on at exactly the same time as Leopold was getting his hands on the Congo. Where in an American history museum can you see a good exhibit about that? Nowhere, I suspect. I have little trouble imagining what future history books will say about today. I was talking to someone about how a lot of people say, people with kids, I'm not a parent, but people with kids, I often say, you know, I want to be able to tell my kids that I did everything I could, which is a noble idea, but I think they're lying to themselves because I think if they really get the chance to talk to their great-grandchildren, if they're really honest, they'll have to say, well, there was a lot I could have done, but it was really inconvenient. Yes. Do you know how cheap gas was? Yeah. Yeah. And I look at, uh, I mean, that scene with the boats coming in full and going out empty or with soldiers and weapons. We're getting the cobalt. And what are we sending there? And, you know, we're not sending soldiers so much as, see, I think they weren't digging cobalt before. We had some use for it here. Mm-hmm. And so we have to get them to do it. And one way to do it, I mean, one way to do it in the past was if you got a bunch of people that are living off on their own, chop down their trees so they can't they can't live off the land anymore. And now they're stuck in your system. Yep. And then you get the weapons and you force them to work. Today, there's other ways of doing it. One of the more effective ways today is, is addiction. Mm-hmm. So we send them cell phones that use cobalt. Yeah. And now you need it too. Yeah. And- we send them solar panels and we say, look, you can bypass our fossil fuels. And just like you, you can leapfrog having landlines into cell phones, you can leapfrog coal into solar, neglecting that solar panels are not clean, green or renewable, even if you call them clean, green or renewable. Right. Right. And so addiction, I think is, it's not the only tool we have. I mean, another thing is to sell them debt and put them in, in debt to us. Yeah. We found different mechanisms to result in something very similar. 
And the thing that I add to it that I don't think other people get is that it's making us, it's depriving us of liberty sure, and joy and culture and replacing it with Facebook. Like time with family is now FaceTime with family yes, and brief little visits in holidays, which is nothing compared to what it was before. Yeah. 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 I want to share with you a journey that I've gone through, through your books and the trajectory that they led me to. Because I couldn't really talk about slavery and, and I couldn't talk about slavery until I could talk about abolitionism. And I didn't really understand mm -hmm. slavery until something that really made it click was, I don't know if you've read his, uh, Eric Williams, um, the historian from the Caribbean. Yeah. One of the, and he, he wrote a book called Capitalism and Slavery. Capitalism and Slavery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he talked about how something that I didn't realize and I, slavery Racism didn't cause slavery. Slavery caused racism. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ibram Kendi writes this today that it's tempting to think, well, these Europeans were racist. They saw the Africans as subhuman, so they took them and used them as slaves. But it was really the material conditions of slavery, as Eric Williams writes, that it was much cheaper, much more economical and more efficient to enslave Africans than other Europeans or Native Americans for various reasons, which he goes talks about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if racism caused slavery, what caused racism? I'm sorry, uh, what caused slavery? And so that came from colonialism, came from imperialism. And here's a story that I've come about in my head. And I, I wonder, you may know more about this than me or may be able to tell me how it resonates with you. Because I'm coming about – I guess I reached a point of studying some anthropology and I don't pretend to be an anthropologist. But I came across this concept that a dominance hierarchy for, can form when one group – can control a resource that the other needs and has no alternative to. Mm -hmm. So a common way you might see this is if there's, um, if there's a place where you can fish and no other place around there where you can fish and there's no other source of protein around and you can control the access to that fishing grounds, you can then for a certain distance away until there's other sources of, of what the fish provide in nutrition, then if I can control that resource, that access to that resource, then I can tell you what to do and you kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. So when I see a dominance, when I see people subjugated, I think, what's the what's the resource that's being controlled here? What's so when there's violence, it's I mean when so, when one group has weapons, the other one doesn't. It's like access to freedom. Yeah. And so here's this story that is formed in my head. Picture two cultures long time ago, one living sustainably, one living unsustainably. The sustainable one has to, by, by definition, has to be living below the means that it could. It, ha it has to be excess resources around because there could be a flood sometime. There could be a drought. Mm -hmm. And they tend to have this idea, and I, I can't say every indigenous culture has this. It still remains. But leave a little bit there. Don't take all the fruit. Don't kill the last yeah. animal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's always going to be some abundance. Now, the one that's not living sustainably must be drawing down on these things. They're chopping down the forest. They're running out of their things. Mm -hmm. As they run out, they have a couple options. One is that they could become sustainable. They could change their culture and become and stop chopping everything down. Another is that I think probably is more common is they can collapse and either die off or become much smaller. Now, in a few rare cases, if they've developed technologies and a culture of domination, they can they might look at others' abundance and say, "Hey, look at that! They got lots of stuff over there. Let's take it." Mm -hmm. If they have the, the weapons and so forth to do it, 
then they can go there. Okay, say they do that. Now they start taking the other people's stuff. They're, what was once abundance now becomes scarcity there. And now they have the same choices. They could Now they could either collapse at a bigger scale. They can become sustainable. Or since they have these weapons, they can go take another sustainable group's stuff mm-hmm. and they can keep doing this until they run out of territory or run out of resources that are in abundance anywhere and butt up against other cultures that have been doing this elsewhere in the world until you have all these unsustainable cultures. And to me, this seems like very, it's a simplified view, but perhaps not an overly simplified view of a part of our history. Now, when I think of, that's imperialism. Mm-hmm. Now, imperialism often leads to, that's if you just take their stuff. If you, if you then settle there, that would be colonialism. And it's rare that you just take their stuff and don't, well, I don't know how rare it is, but you, if you start taking their labor, that's slavery. And when I think about, now, if you say to me imperialism, I guess my first thought would be like these SPQR Roman legions. But I also think about the ships off of West Africa. And the soldiers are risking their lives. Even if they have ways vastly superior weaponry, they're still at risk. They don't want to be away from home. And what's driving them is the government sending them there. And the government is getting the money from what they're plundering. Mm-hmm. But the government isn't using it. It's the people. It's the home market. And all of this drives me to see that this view that one of the most common statements of our time is what I do doesn't matter. But from this view, the home market is actually driving the whole thing. Mm-hmm. The people buying the rubber or the cobalt or the cell phones. We are actually, actually, we're in the driver's seat. Now, we maybe one out of a billion. We are. How does that sound to you? Because I've been forming that, but I, I, I need criticism. Like, is it, is it too yeah. simple? Is it, am I missing key details? No, I think you're right. It, it is, it is the people who want the stuff are driving the acquisition of the stuff and the acquisition of the stuff in distant parts of the world where nobody's looking at it very closely uh, is often a very brutal, brutal process. You, you should do a podcast interview with, this guy I mentioned, Siddharth Kara, who wrote this extraordinary book, Cobalt Red, which is about um, cobalt extraction in the Congo today, the stuff that goes into our cell phones. And he was on the ground looking at this these child labor uh, in the mines. He was in a village at a point when a mine tunnel collapsed and a bunch of children were uh, trapped underground and killed. Uh, so it is very much still going on today. Are you in direct contact with him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll send you his. Uh, I'll send you his email. Okay. I. I also. Um. I had someone on the podcast. Oh, his name escapes me for the moment. He wrote a book on tracing the iPhone back to its roots. Hmm. And he went to Foxconn factories and somehow got past the security and talked about the mines as well. So it's a different perspective, but fascinating. And um, the word repugnance comes to mind a lot these days to me, which I contrast with joy. It, it, to me, I think there's a common view at one end of the spectrum is progress and technology and solutions to all our problems. And at the other end for most people is the stone age and dying at 30 and mothers dying in childbirth. And that's a very easy choice for most people. But for me, this side is full of King Leopold's ghost and it's inextricable. It's not like... and. Because I know physics, there's also the warming and the science behind that and the warming 
that even if we had all that stuff clean and we could have fusion with no greenhouse gas emissions and no radioactivity, we would still be overheating the planet and faster and faster all the time. And at the other side is fresh tomatoes yeah. and time with family. Yeah. And it's this total twist of, of – um... all right. It's your book true. also uh, – Let's maybe wrap this up if you have a final question or two about King Leopold's Ghost. Well, I guess – I mean, I did want to go into you teach uh, journalism or writing. And I'm, I was yeah. curious of how this must draw a lot of students to you and it must be part of the program. And it must – I mean, you've written a lot since then. And I was curious about the legacy to others, to, to your students. Well, uh, I, th I teach at the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley. And I think often the students who take my course there do so because, you know, they've read one or two of my books. They know the kinds of things I write about. And many of them also want to write about issues of uh, social justice, fairness, racism, and so on. And some of them have gone on to write wonderful stuff about all this. Um, it's not a good time for journalism right now, at least print journalism. Uh, the number of people in the, in the profession is dramatically shrinking because people feel they can get all the news they want from the internet without paying for it. Uh, but there are still some good, very good journalists out there. And, um, I'm going to send you the contact information for Siddharth Karan, uh, who I think you'll want to talk to about his book. I can't claim that he's a former student of mine, but he's a, he's a friend. Uh, so I still think there is a huge role for people who want to tell stories about justice and injustice and about how the acts of individual people and groups of people can change the world. I like looking at instances of this in the past where Things are far enough back so we can really see exactly how that happened. But the battles we have to fight right now, of course, are about things going on today. I wish I could keep you on for just maybe another five or six hours. but <laughs> <laughs> Another time. Yeah. Well, Adam Hochschild, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.